Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Soulful's Vision. In today's episode, we discuss debunking five myths about Marxism. This is a 90-minute discussion, and we invite you to call in at 347-857-1319. All right, we're back in the house here. We are yes, here yes, on yes. Monday as usual, showing it up, brother. Part of the right. power, man, is just showing up, brother. Just part of it's just <laughs> showing up. That shit. That's all. That's all it is to it. You you might not have time for everything else, but part of it's just showing up, brother. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But yeah, man, how you doing, man? It's good to good to be back. Uh, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Uh, good a little windy. Good, good, My good, allergies good. kicking yeah. up a little bit. But other than mm-hmm. that, definitely. Right, right on, right on. Definitely. Well, you know, we're back uh, excited about the show as usual. I want to, before we get started, want to uh, kind of announce a couple of announcements. Um, next week, we're going to be having uh, a guest on the show, um, Brian Bean, who's a writer for um, the uh, Socialist Worker, socialistworker.org. So if any of you listening haven't uh, checked out that site, you should definitely subscribe to it. It's Socialist Worker. Dot org and and basically it it uh it is a site that really keeps current on a lot of the issues that are going down uh right now i mean you know there's all kind of stuff you know jumping off every day uh and you have uh, it's, it's like a newspaper really it's an online uh a magazine have an online newspaper if you will a lot of articles in there about trump and uh Venezuela and uh, you know just a lot of different stuff that's, that's going on. A lot of current stuff, and I'm pretty sure that uh, they 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 write about this stuff in, in light of from a socialist perspective. And I'm saying I'm pretty sure they do that because I don't always get a get a chance to go read um, what they talk about as much as I would like to. Uh, but I wanted I want to promote it because I, I do have an, I do subscribe to it and I get it in my email and and I do tend to start reading more of the articles. But anyway, we're going to have a writer from there. Because there's going to be a conference in Chicago, uh, July the 6th or the 9th in Chicago. Unfortunately, I won't be going. I don't think, Carl, you not won't be able to go as well. But we want to promote this conference because <clears throat> they've been, while they've been going and while they've been having this conference for a number of years, um, I anticipate that it's going to be, you know, probably twice as big, uh, you know, this year because of all the things that have been going on and because really there's just been a lot of interest in socialism. And, and they're going to have um, a lot, a varied amount of speakers there, and so we're going to be interviewing. <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> um, a, a writer from there is going to talk about the conference and what the workshops are going to be about, and, and you know what the focus is going to be about. So we really look forward to uh, for, the, for that to happen. So so definitely uh, check check us out next uh, next Monday, and if you want to call in with some questions to. Uh, Brian Bean, who is the uh, the writer for socialistworker.org, uh, definitely do that. I also see a somebody's called in uh, a two five four number. I'm not sure who that is. Uh, if you want to hang in there, if you're listening, you want to hang in for about uh, thirty minutes or so. We're going to do uh, the, the day's topic, and then we'll uh, open up the um, open it up to callers, right? And so 
Right. Anyway, what, what, yeah. What other, um, I, I also want to um, put a shout out to an article that's in the Nation, that just came out in the Nation, uh, May 22nd, mm-hmm. 29th, Nation article. Um, most most of the, it's a liberal left uh, magazine, uh, so much of their stuff uh, doesn't push, it, um, you know, and speaking to the question of socialism. But there's one article I strongly suggest our, our listeners really check it out. It's by Jesse A. Meyerson called White, Black, and Red. It does two things in the article. Uh, one, it talks about the material basis to the rise of Trump um, and neo-fascists and his relationship to the neo-fascists in, um, in Germany. And then it pivots to talk about uh, because he speaks to the, neo, the, the material basis of neo-fascism from, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, 45, that their material basis for them existed for those who make $75,000 to $100,000 a year, uh, which he described as the petty bourgeois. These are the people who have either a small business or they, uh, you know, do contract work, um, they uh, you know, expiring to be, you know, the, the next billionaire, and that it that is where um, forty five bases of support principally came from. The media has basically twisted it and simply said it is the low income. It was predominantly low income white working class. Now we know the significant vast of the white working class. Um, uh, have you know have racism, and and have uh, and the system provides what we call white skin privilege. But what he says is that in our attempt to attack, to misunderstand the, the the working class and particularly the white working class, we're not building the kind of working class united front and unity that helps to work through them to understand, white workers to understand that they're being exploited and oppressed by the same enemy that exploits and oppress people of color, um, and, you know, and immigrants and others. So uh, it's a really good article. It's fairly short. It, it has a little historical um, piece, but not a lot. Um, and I strongly recommend for people who like some light reading, nothing heavy, but really gets to the point early on on the topic that we covered in our last uh, radio show. So, Yeah, and, and definitely check that out. We, we did a show on neo-fascism last time, and, and I think it's really critical. Um, there, there was even, uh, I don't know, one of these shows, CNN or somebody, talking about, you know, the, the real kind of threat on democracy in this country. And, and, and that's, that's one that's another way to think about neo-fascism, and we talked about that in the show last time. Don't, I mean, it's not just about somebody, you know, like a state where, like some fascist state where people are holding a gun to your head, okay, all right? The best form of fascism is when they don't have to hold a gun to your head, all right? That, that's the best form because what that, what that means is, is that you're undermining and unpacking and, and, and kind of withering away at, uh, democratic institutions, so that people 
you know, that people have less and less input to the decision-making process, that there are no democratic institutions, no check and balances on, on the power structure, that is the, the oligarchy. Um, that's, that's the withering way of, of democracy that leads to the kind of neo-fascism we're talking about, right? And so it's not, a, it's, again, it certainly could lead to, you know, uh, kind of, um, what do you call it, an armed state, you know, what do you, what do you call those states when the, what, what do you call it, what's that word, Carl, when the state is, um, my military state comes out, you know, and, and you know, locks people down, locks, locks, locks down, you know, entire communities, locks down entire, you know, cities or whatever. Um, sure, it, it could get to that point, you know, whatever, but that is really, that's the extreme part. The, the really, the to me, the best form of, the, not say the best, but neo-fascism doesn't require that. The best way to get people to fall in line is when you don't have to point guns at them. Now, in some, some people's communities, I think you have fascism straight up because people are uh, on, under a police state rule. I mean, there, if you look at certain black communities, as we definitely see, um, there is, there is, it's, it is a de facto, like, police state. Um, there are um, that, that uh, you're talking about poor people. Um, they, their lives are, are seriously managed um, by uh, state, uh, state and local, and even federal uh, institutions. Their their lives are like that. I mean, maybe they have they have some freedom to go in and out their house. They have some freedom to watch TV. But I mean, a lot of their uh, existence, a lot of what they their their needs, a lot of their, uh, their you know their existence is is, is heavily um, influenced and. Uh, impacted by um, by state powers. When we talk about the um, this enforcement of the I, uh, ISIS, right? Going, being able to go into um, immigrants' houses, the people who've been here for for a long time, and be able to you know go in and take them out and then jail them. Uh, that's a form of, of of fascism to me. I mean, I, you know, we can people want to say, well, you're you're stretching the term. Like no, I mean I, I think when you get to the point where you have state you have state apparatus in any kind of form is is targeting um, communities of people, uh, sectors of people, races of people. Uh, that's a form of that's a form of fascism, and and you have to watch it like that because what it can do is just get worse and worse and worse. So it's it, it, you may think well no that that's just our laws. That's just the way laws are set up. So the immigrants are here illegally. Well, fuck yeah. That's the reason why the law is set up that way to control people. So just because something's a law doesn't make it a just law. And so you have to get, you know, you have to get out of the notion that every law is a just law. That every law is something that we should uh, um, want, right? That is that is good for us. No, shit. Fucking slavery was a law. The enslavement of African people was a law. It was not some little group that was uh, doing something. It wasn't just the landowners doing it. It was, it was a federal and state law. That's the reason why you had a war against it. One of the reasons why you had a war against it, because it was a law. So you, you understand what I'm saying, Carl? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
becomes integrated as a part okay. of the system. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And, and, and generally, yeah. as you describe it, there are pockets of fascism and neo-fascism in our society all mm. over. Yeah. And it and it, what it what is qualitatively different uh today under 45 as he has taken it to a whole nother level on a federal level to integrate every aspect of it. So that yeah. is when the entire country becomes in danger and democracy is fully undermined. I mean in it, for years in various communities whether you know ISIS or the police who rolled through, you know, the ghettos and, and barrios of our, our, our uh, fascism was practiced. But what was qualitatively different was it wasn't practiced on a wide scale and open and blatant form. Now you have a full-on-word push towards neo-fascism uh, that will completely undermine uh, the whole democratic um, struggle an aspiration of the people to move to move forward. That is that, and and so when people say, well, when you talk about fascism and as you described, um, in our communities, you know, as you guys overextended, and I, you know, you're just stretching it. No, I'm talking about the evolution and expansioning yeah. and deepening <laughs> that it just becomes so pervasive that once it is mm-hmm. complete, you think that's how it is. Because right. it doesn't right. wake up, fascism doesn't wake up and call an edict and say we we're now all fascist state. It don't work like that. It's a slow mm-hmm. emerging process that eats away at every aspect of our society. And then you wake up one day and wonder what happened. It was happening right before your very eyes. And so, forty five is doing it now. And there are those who are who. who Cannot, unable, unwilling to recognize that neo-fascism is emerging right before their very eye. Now, is it absolute? No. You can struggle against no. it. You can fight against it. That's, that's right. your responsibility. And, and, and that's, you what's can... making it, that's what's making it difficult. That's what's making it difficult for the asshole in, in the White House to, to know, in order to bring about some of his aspirations is because we still had democratic institutions that are putting his ass in check. You see what I'm saying? They are pushing back on that. But I'm saying those institutions have, have been weakened. They're weakened for the, for the very fact that, you, that he was allowed to get in there in the first place. And then two is that now that he's there and everybody knows he shouldn't be there, there is nothing, there's, the, the, the Democratic institutions are not strong enough to take his ass out right now, right? So, that, again, that shows you where there's a weakness of it. I would even go so far, I think about this weekend, Carl, I would even go so far as to say neoliberalism, even under Obama, Obama is a neoliberal. Neoliberalism, which means that, they, that, that there, there are, there's an ideology that sees the market forces as pretty much a solution to everything, that right there even undermines democracy to, to a certain right. extent as well. Right. Uh, okay, oh yeah. So, oh yeah. So, so we have to, we have to really. That's my, that's my thing. Is, 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 you know, people like, well, you just want to just call everything a fascist. No, I don't want to do that. I want you to understand what's happening. Just like the fact that we talked about this in past shows as well, is that the, is that the working class, has been undermined, over the last well over, you know, fifty years. 
Yeah. I mean, there, there's been an eroding of the working class, and that working class is is because you see the you see the demise of the unions, for example. So the right. ability for people to organize under unions that's one a. B is to is to get this middle class that Carl talked about. These people are you know making seventy five to hundred thousand. Uh, and, you know, and they might be put, they may have petty bourgeois uh, aspirations, or they just, you know, they're, they're making that level of money. Now, what this class sees is that, first off, like any other any other class, working class, poor working class, who's making less than seventy five thousand, what they see is is that the government is taking money out of their their check, right? And it, you can clearly see that because you get every time you get a fucking check, you see the government taking it out. Every time you have to pay taxes, you see that you got to take some money and you got to give it to the government. They're pissed off, right? Uh, you know, in, in many in many ways, rightly so, because if you got most of the most of the, a lot of the money that the gov the taxes the gov the government uses is, is being to subsidize corporations to pay for fucking wars to give high salaries to uh, to government to government uh, to to, uh, to politicians and, and, and employees. Yeah, you will be pissed off too. But you blaming. But when, when they, what happens is you turn around and say, "No, it is the it is the people on welfare, or it's the immigrants that are taking your money." No, you need to do some more study, all right? So, because that ain't the biggest bulk of it. The biggest bulk of your money is going to the military, and That's and right. so they turn back around and say, "Well, we're using this money to protect you." No, you you don't need trillions of dollars to protect your ass. Matter of fact. You wouldn't have to be worried about this if you wouldn't fucking with everybody around the world. So, I mean, if you're going to get upset about how your money's used, it's important that you say, we want to elect people that are going to use the money in the proper way. They're going to use it in a way that's going to benefit not only the people who pay the taxes, because the middle class has to, because the uh, corporate class gets out of pain, their fair share, you know, it's down to like, shit, 30%, 15%. Sometimes, shit, they find ways not to pay at all. I mean, they're oh. saying, I've read articles, research this shit. These motherfuckers have gotten away without paying anything. And you just, just go Google that shit. It's on there. So my thing is, is that, so if, if, if you see that, then this middle class that's making that seventy five to $100,000, $200,000 a year, does wind up paying more, and guess what? You can say you can say all you want, all the problems you, you can say all you want about taxes in terms of it being unfair, blah blah blah. But guess what? Taxes are needed in a capitalist society because why? You look at the two biggest top employers in the fucking in in the, in, in the country. What I understand are Walmart and McDonald's. That's what I understand. Okay. Those are the two top employees in the fucking country, but yet the, those people who work for them have to get government assistance because they're not making enough money, even though they go to work 20 hours, 40 hours a week, right? Mm-hmm. They have to go get government assistance in order to meet the, meet the benefit, you know, meet the, uh, the, the requirements of cost of living and also not only cost of living, but the profit demands of corporations that where they had to buy shit. Okay, so so the, the thing is, if you if you notice that the, the the welfare state 
and 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 and, and the tax thing came about early on in 1900, right, or even before that. But it, but it, but it's, it's really to compensate for what capitalism cannot and is not doing. It's not going to pay people a, li- a fucking living wage. It's going to ratchet up anything that it sells, and you don't even know how much the fuck you're paying for, um, uh, 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 and how much more you're paying on, on, on products and services, how much more are you paying so that you can meet their profit demand? Because they demand a fucking profit. So if, if you, if, that's why you, as, a, as we as working class, even if you're making $7,500, which really ain't a lot of fucking money, it's not. So, you know, under capitalism, it's not a lot of money. So yeah, yeah, I know how you feel the, the, the feel the pressure. I, I can feel you can feel the heat. I understand that, but you understand that you're pointing the fingers at the wrong thing, and so and then you got sold a bill of goods because what you got now is oligarchy in power in the White House. And when that oligarchy comes in the White House, it's going to try to undermine this institution and try to as much as possible. That's the reason why this motherfucker in the White House is is, is signing all kind of what do you call him? He, he signed a presidential, uh, what do you call it, Carl? Executive orders. Ex- executive orders. That's all the motherfuckers do. That's all he wants to do. This is, this is what, he's like, fuck, I don't want to deal with Congress. I don't want to deal with none of that shit. I want to be able to sign some motherfucking executive orders and get them, get them in place and make them happen. This is what he really wants, and not just him. See, that's another mistake you make. Because you think, well, we can just, it's just him. No. No, there's an entire class that wants shit this way, right? They want to be able to tell you and tell us how things are going to go down. Well, guess what? People ain't going to have that, all right? People, a lot of people are not going to have that. Some people find it very acceptable. Your Christian right, your Christian right definitely wants that. Your Christian right wants some people in power that will, that will, uh, that will speak to their or speak to their no, not even that will support their their Armageddon or their like you know Christian value you know uh, vision and goals right. Um, they want somebody. That's what he'll do. The motherfucker he ain't Christian. He don't give a fuck about no goddamn God. But the thing of it is, he will support them in their ideology, and their likewise will support him as long as he enforces some of the things. That they want to do So they, they fucking want to roll back On democratic institutions So you can go more and more Towards this kind of theocratic Part of the theocratic state Part of it will be a theocratic state And part of it will be an oligarch state So, so be clear Or a neo-fascist state They want that A lot of people it, it seems easier If you can have somebody in power To tell everybody what the fuck to do if, you know, to, to them, it seems fucking easy that if, if everybody just fucking just go by the law, go by the rules, if you just do what you're told, we would live much better, right? And they believe this shit, Carl. They fucking believe it. You know, and and until we realize that, you know, I'm I'm kind of scared that it that it might happen eventually. That that we will we will go to a state. That we can't even imagine right now, uh, because they think that this is the only way that you can you can lower crime, you can you can lower the prison rate imprisonment rate because if we, if we just enforce more laws, if we get if we don't have to have all the decisions going on and shit, this democracy and all that, 
get get a fucking republic. That's why I talk about republic. They want a republic, right? So you have fewer and fewer and fewer people making all the decisions, and what you're supposed to do is fucking fall in line. That's what we're supposed to do. But that shit ain't going to happen. Not my dime. It ain't going to happen. But anyway, um, shit. I can go on <laughs> about that, bro. I, I know. I shit. I can go on about that. You know what I mean? <laughs> Well, we, let's let's get to our show today, though. Um, okay. All right. I see some Carrie callers Ingleton. there. Callers, we're going to let you in. Let's, let's go about 20 minutes, and then we're going to let you in, okay? We'll let you in with your questions. I don't want you to hang on, have to hang on too long. Go ahead, Carl. Go ahead and get us started, bro. Uh, no, I was going to uh, – Terry Ingleton, uh book, um, How oh, yeah. How Marx Was why, Right. Why Marx Was Right. Yeah, yeah why, why Marx Was Right. Was right. Ingleton, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it, it's a the the book is a is a a really good. Um, remember, Terry Eagleton is a cultural critic, a literary critic. He's written a number mm-hmm. of different um, books. Uh, one on uh, reason, faith, and revolution. I I think we talked about that once before. Uh, oh, maybe it was at one of our Sunday. Group, but he he outlines about ten different um, myths about Marx that are, that is out there, and uh, he does it in a way he doesn't go as deep. There's one part where I have a real problem with it that I think um, that he speak to, and I'll speak to that later. But um, does a, first and for, first and foremost, um, Marx was a historist. You know, he he he, he, he was. Uh, in a sense that he was a scientific historian. He was a scientist. First, he was he was also a scientist, but first and foremost, he was a revolutionary. And, you know, um, Engels, uh, at his, uh, uh, at, at, you know, at, at Karl Marx's uh, graveside, pointed that point, made that point, because oftentimes people think of Karl Marx as an economist who wrote this great book, um, uh, Das Kapital, and it is, it's a, it's a fantastic, powerful uh, book. Um, but Engel, at his, uh, at his great side of Karl Marx said, his real mission in life was to contribute in one way or another to the overthrow. <laughs> let, me, let me repeat. His real mission in life was to contribute in one way or another to the overthrow of the capitalist system and of the state institution which is brought into being to contribute to the liberation of the modern proletariat, which he first, which he was the first to make conscious of his own positions, his needs, consciousness, of the condition of his mass emancipation. So first and foremost, please first think of Karl Marx as a revolution. Next, think of him as a scientist. He's a historical scientist. He was out to discover what was going on in terms of what was capital, you know, in terms of capitalism, the social condition, and he discovered certain things. Historical materialism is one. Um, di- application of dialectics in, in, a, in a material and concrete sense. 
surplus value as a basis upon which understanding the exploitation uh, uh, of, of the working class and the fundamental nature uh, of capitalism. Those are the things that he discovered. Um, so, and he did that as a scientist by sitting down and both uh, critically analyzing, critiquing other uh, uh, scientific economists of his day from 1700 up to the early 1800s, uh, uh, and even 1600s um, uh, from the physiocrats and others. But he also was, he contributed enormous, uh, 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 enormously in helping, because in helping the working class and the proletariat. The way he did that, first and foremost, he says, I'm going to make you rethink and to understand things. So I want you to I want you to put away this metaphysical thinking of this belief in uh, theology and God and all this idolistic stuff of what, you know, people ideas. And let's just look at things materially. He says, let me, and he said, I'm going to make it so simple you can understand this stuff. In order for you to live, you have to eat. You have to drink water. You have to have shelter. Or you die. Now, every human being has to do this. And every mammal has to do this. That is your material life, he called life activity. You're in a constant search for food, protection, and water. If not, you die. And so through that process of learning how to do it better, Looking at the history, uh, from you know earlier period, we developed social, social and economic system, which was based on this real life material uh, life activity condition. When he speaks of materialism, he talks about it in the sense of life activity how we work together, how we, when uh, societies under the band society group together to capture, you know, a wild boar, a wild animal, and they would trap it, and everyone have their role in, to play, and who would force it into the net, and, and who would capture it and kill it, and, and how that distribution of, the, of that uh, meat was done. That's a whole complex social economic system. And he looked at it and says, now, if you look at it that way, he says, but one of the interesting things about it is that it was not a deterministic thing. Your life wasn't completely predetermined, that you, you, you can't change alter life. He says, one of the interesting things about it is that you are born into a social system. Granted, you didn't get a chance to say, well, you know, guess what, uh, mom and dad, I, I don't want to be born in capitalism. I don't want to be born at the time of 45. Can we back it up a little bit? And I want to be born in another period. There, you're, you're born in a, in a, in a, in a uh, social economic uh, setting and condition of not your choosing. But one of the interesting things about humans is that we have the ability to use our knowledge to shape and change it. So once we know how something works, we use it to improve ourselves. 
in earlier societies when we didn't have uh, sophisticated tools, when we were not even what we call homo sapiens sapiens. Homo sapiens, or the ones that transitioned to homo sapiens, basically didn't use any tools. They basically took whatever carcasses that were the, the other animals ate, and we just broke into the bone and got the meat from there. Um, we uh, took fruits and, and other things from uh, off the vine. But it, what made us human is our ability to use the first stone and uh, flint and then use that flint to create a tool. And that took place in southern Africa, and that set us off to become homo sapiens because we begin to use, aha, if I do this to this thing, I can get me some meat, which I can help keep us all alive in, as a band society, and we can keep moving. We don't have to die. So it was a, so Marx knew that even though you're in a social system, you're not completely determined by that. You can shift and change it and improve and move it in a particular direction. Um, he, um, there is the argument that this says that Marx's understanding about class was this very simplistic notion of his relationship to production. Um, well, yes and no. Um, he did, so that is the initial basis. But we often t tell people to read um, Engels' uh, history you know, history and analysis of the English working class, because that, in many ways, describes the working class in a much broader context and not just simply from the industrial worker. So the industrial worker is not the only working class, and Marx was describing it in a much broader and a much more expansive sense, and even the word proletariat, because it's in my, the proletariat was more the advanced working class folks who are conscious of themselves as a class to, to, to say we need to change things. The other thing is that people say, well, Marx art, uh, advocated for a violent political action. No. Wait, 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 Carl. Hey, Carl. Hey, Carl. Wait, hold on a second. <laughs> Quick. Let, let me stop on the economic thing, okay? Okay. I, I, want, I want to kind of consider because we're, we're moving really fast on them. So, so, so one of the myths is that, that Marxism reduces everything to economics. Um, and I and I've heard this before. Even my daughter, you know, we've had that we've had that um, discussion before. A lot of people see that what and and because yes, you know, when you talk about Marxism, you talk about socialism, and, and we do on the show a lot. We talk a lot about economics. Talk about a lot about class struggle. I I, I certainly get that um, that 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 people would think that that's what he it reduces everything to, and 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 in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of his books are devoted to that. Uh, Dust capital is, you know, devoted to capitalism. Uh, but one of the things that, one of the reasons why I say that that is partially true and partially wrong is, 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 is on two, it's on two fronts. First off is that I, I do think that a lot of the basis of the struggles that we have in terms of the struggles that we have around social justice issues, you know, that is racism, sexism, um, a lot of these kind of issues, you know, identity issues, things of that sort, they do have as a backdrop the economic relationships that we have that 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 are motivated by that. Now, listen, I'm not saying that's the only thing, but they're motivated by that. Let me let me give you an example of that. If you look at the question of enslavement of African people, 
that was that was one in terms of Europeans have a worldview that they are superior to everybody else, and that they they were also looking been looking at the Portuguese and French and the, and the British and all that. They went outside their their uh, their borders. They went outside their geographical area to one to look for other resources because you have to understand that parts of Europe has limited resources and that. Shoot, if you look at the question of Africa, for example, has much more, abundant more resources, right? And so if you look at, they're going outside these places to find resources, and in a lot of ways they did it bodily. They, they went places and they took, they explored it to get those resources. This is the reason why you see the growth of, 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 of many parts of Europe, particularly Western Europe, is because they did it off the backbone of the colonization of other uh, countries and people, that, including Africa and India, places in, in you know Central and South America and America. So, you know, it was done. They were doing it, and they were, they got very good at it. And 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 by and, and by by nature, that is, the um, capitalist system um, uh, grew and expanded based upon that colonization of of other subject people. So I mean that that right there is just historical. That's that's it. So, but also, but also, but also, but but it's even more fundamental than that. It's even more fundamental than that. You can't create an idea if you're dead. Mm -hmm. You gotta live first. You gotta be a human being. There was no, there was no machines running the world back then. Right. Uh, you know, right. cyberspace. There were people. Right. And people have to live first. So when we talk, when people always say, well, Marxism reduced everything to economics. No, we don't reduce everything from economics. We proceed from the analysis of the economics to talk about all the other aspects in terms of ideas, psychology, culture, you know, uh, wars and everything else. We begin there, but we don't end there. We, right, we use that, that as but, the but, lens. But wouldn't, you say, but, but, but wouldn't you say, Carl, listen, but wouldn't you say that in the, in the very time that we began to start trading with one another, begin to sell stuff to one another, to be able to... Again, but that's economic. Stuff, that, yeah. that, that to me is a form that's of economic. That's economic. You see my point? Yeah, yeah that's, that's economic. But again, but again... Go ahead. But again... It's ec- that's economics. So the question, when people say, you know, you guys always make everything reduced to economics. No, we proceed from economics to sp- speak about other things. So yeah. when commerce, when, when you know, uh, travel begins to take place, when, the, the, you know, private property, all of that has, are, are, are basically fundamentally economic in nature. Now, I'm not saying at the end of the day that you should begin and end at economics, and no Marxists do. We talk about the politics of stuff. We talked about the class struggle of stuff and the, 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 the question of war and the question of you know, many other aspects, psychology and culture and clash. All of that plays all into it. But at the root of what gives basis and gives rise to it, African enslavement um, was not because white people didn't like Africans. They, they, African enslavement was fundamentally about they needed cheap labor 
And basically, they needed that labor here in America. That, and because they had basically wiped out the Native American, whites were dying. The only one that was be able to survive. And as a result, they created a whole white supremacy analysis around that enslavement. They had to justify what they were doing. Now, I'm not saying that ideas have power that could influence the material condition. They do. It's just that one of the things that people tend to do, and particularly anti-Marxists tend to do, is separate the two and say, may the two never meet. And we argue that they're interconnected and they're interrelated, and you cannot separate the two. I'm not, but we also understand that you can't simply say, well, because, you know, it's all strictly profit motive and that's it. Well, that's the basis of it. But let's explain how this profit motive work and how the impact and gives rise to yeah, neo-liberal, I mean, neo-fascism. That, so that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. That, that, that's, what's, that's what's important. That's my, that's my point, too, is that because when we, enter, when we enter into those kind of economic relationships, right, they influence all kinds of social interactions, be they, be, they, right. be they positive and negative, mostly a lot of it's negative. Even look in the African slave, slave trade, right? Uh, we, don't, I mean, we don't want to think about it a lot of times, but some Africans sold each other to the Europeans. You know what I mean? They sold their brothers and sisters to Europeans. Well, predominantly, you know, they, they did. A relationship. They did. So, they did. Because so, the Europeans and, and, couldn't and, get and, into and the interior also, of Africa. They, right. The Europeans so they could not get into the imperial Africa until the they, 1800s. They couldn't, they couldn't get into interior Africa, but also because they also were coerced. Some, some, in many places they were coerced to do it as well. But the mm-hmm. the, the 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 basis of that was a so a economic relationship that exists. And so we even have this to even much more so even today that we talk about on this show time and time and time again. That we are a basically a market-driven uh, economic political system, so that when you are in this thing of, of competition, when you're in the thing of having to sell yourself, because every time that you go to your, if you're going to work for somebody else, right, they own they own you, right? You're selling yourself to them. That's an economic relationship. You sell yourself to them. You do work for them. They pay you. They pay you back. Question of it is, is do you feel like that you do you feel like that, that, that what you that, that what they pay you is 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 enough? Is it just you know is it just or, or are they exploiting your labor? But you you enter that relationship, all right. So that that when even when you go buy something, when you go buy an iPhone or you go buy a television, in in the underbelly of that is it's an economic relationship because you go buy it. But it's also for the for the people who created created that or, or, or built that that telephone or that that TV, right, or whatever it is, whatever the good is. Where do those goods come from? Who was exploited in order to get those goods? So time and time again, you see these economic uh, relationships. Economics is an undercurrent of that. In Terry Ingram's book, he also talks about this notion of scarcity, right? We've had this notion of scarcity from time immortal. From the time that we've been here, it's been an issue about scarcity. So in, 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 the, in the early uh, communal times where there was serious scarcity because people had to learn how to share because you did not have abundance of food. We didn't, we didn't have this kind of uh, industrialized 
production of food. We didn't even have, even before agriculture, right, we didn't even have that. So there was a serious scarcity there. But then when we moved into the next phase of music production, which is agriculture, right, there was even, again, a notion of scarcity. But now people begin to see, wait, wait a minute. I can produce some stuff, and if I produce enough, I can privatize what I produce and sell it. Again, there's there's an economic relationship, and sell it to other people, right? So, but, and then I can also say, well, that means that there's a, there's, a, there's a perceived scarcity because if I'm only producing so much food, right, people are going to perceive that there's only so much food, in particular if they don't know how, if they don't have the skills to uh, farm and build their own food, they're going to perceive that there's a scarcity there. So you can almost mark up the price as much as the market would bear, right, because people have a perceived scarcity. Same thing with, that's the reason why you don't always hear about, well, you know, the oil state, you know, the people who produce oil, they don't want to always tell you how much oil they really, really have because they always want you to give it the perception that it's a scarcity of it, and it, and it probably is. But that, that notion of scarcity is one that capitalism uses to keep people thinking that if, if we don't do a certain thing, I might not have it. If, if, I don't, if I don't control a certain level of property, if I don't control a certain level of goods and services, Somebody else may get it. So, again, that's the reason why the economics is kind of the basis of a lot of social relationships. It does influence racism. It does influence sexism. It, it, it does influence our political structure, definitely, indeed. If you haven't seen that by now, and you don't understand that economics influences our political uh, uh, decision-making process, our political institutions, then you, you really have been blind. Uh, so it is the basis of that, but it's not where we end. That's, so that's, that's kind of, I just want to really put some highlights on that because that, that's important to see. And, and don't write off Marx because you think that he's always talking about economics. No, you can learn from Marx and understand how Marx didn't talk about everything. Like Terry England talks about, Marx doesn't go in and talk about everything. Like he doesn't talk about eroticism. He's not going to talk about transgender. Okay, we're going to have to work all that kind of stuff out. I, we definitely need to do that. But I, I, even if you talk about the transgender thing, that you can even find some economic the basis of that as well. Maybe not as much, you know, and, uh, it, 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 the basis, but it's definitely there. But though, you know, yeah, Marx didn't talk about transgender because that wasn't what he was. That wasn't what what the issue at, at his time. That wasn't his focus. Right. Right, both sexism and racism as well. I mean, it's it's not part of it. Remember, for a lot of people, there's he he talks about it, but probably in one-liners. So it's not deep. It's not why. Number one, yes, he did a lot. He was as a scientist, he was really studying the economics. But Mm -hmm. volumes of his, if if anyone has the collective work of Karl Marx vast majority of that stuff is about political analysis of what's happening in the world yeah. today. When he was a writer political with the economy. New York Tribune. Political economy. Yeah, political economy stuff. So he was writing about wide variety, you know, the Paris Commune. He was head of the International uh, Workers you know, uh, uh, Association, I mean, and the dynamics. Um, it, it, a lot of this stuff he was writing that did, did not have, you know, deep 
you know, economic, political economic analysis that people are familiar with in Das Kapital, Volume 1, 2, 3, and the theory of surplus value, 1, 2, 3, 4. So, you know, you know, as Engels would say, he was driven fundamentally to overthrow the capitalist system. That was what, you know, his engine. He was not moralistic. He wasn't, he didn't seek no moral analysis. Of, that was one of the problems he had with Bauer and, and Strauss and some of these other cats uh, who just talk about the, the capitalist system in moral terms, Owens and Foyer, they talked in moral terms. That's not what, you know, he says, you know, in order to, for the working class to liberate, liberate themselves, they need knowledge about work, the condition they are in. Once they, are, once they are, you increase their awareness about, the, about what the system they, they are in, they will want a different system than that currently exists. But until then, we need to blow away all the myths about what the, you know, the capitalist system is all about. The other thing is, uh, and then I think we need to turn to our caller, is um, it is that I wanted to speak to is that most people think that Karl Marx was a violent, he believed in violent rip overthrow of the system. In fact, Karl Marx got attacked relentlessly because he didn't go with uh, Bukern and some of these other cats who believe in the, you know, let's go organize this conspiratorial group and overthrow this city and this country, you know, violently. Let's just, you know, let's do a shootout at OK Corral at the Capitol. His thing was expanding the democracy, getting involved in the electoral system. Uh, and they always thought he was just some conservative revolutionary, that, you know, he wasn't all that radical. He wasn't down with the people if he wasn't taking up the arms kind of uh, advocating taking up the arm. His philosophy was f fairly simple. I'm not going to be the one that's the, the, that um, uh, engaged in the revolution. It must be the working class themselves. It must be a social revolution using all the means necessary to get us there. And at the time, a lot of these uh, places, Germany, um, uh, the early part of France, but also throughout Austria, Hungary, a lot of these places were monarchies, and they had no democracy. They had no parliament. They had none of this stuff. And so his thing was we need to struggle to get, you know, expansive more of democracy to include the working class in the electoral system so that we can educate the, work, the working class that the, the bourgeois system is no longer viable and needs to be replaced. And so that was his thing, and he was attacked relentlessly, uh, consistently, over and over again, in, in their mind, as being some bourgeois, conservative, academic, revolutionary that was more interested in organizing organizations and supporting folks that are pushing for democracy than for revolution. So there's, there's, you know, if people just study their history and, and, and you know, Ray France Mitterrand and others who are, who have done autobiography of Marx, um, and, or read some of his works, you would find that you know the notion of violent revolution, you know, in in the style of the Che Guevara and the guerrillas, and you know we're gonna seize power. I mean, that's all made for TV, um, and uh, uh, and it works because that's how the the bourgeois class, the uh, the ruling class, and the fascist view. Marxist as this evil, 
you know, devil who's lurking in the path to, with guns and weapons going to seize political power. Uh, and that's not what, um, you know, Marx was advocating at that particular time. Well, let's, let's uh, get a few callers in. We have two of them here. I don't know what. Okay. Um, and, again, if, if, if I'm, I'm calling, I'll let you in. If you have a, a distinct question, please just ask that question or a comment. We can't go on too long because we're running out of time as well. So I'm letting two, two, five, two, five, four area code. Are you there? Hi. Hello. Hey, Hi. Uh, this is uh, it's Jay. You probably know oh, me from hey, Twitter Jay. and everything. Great. Oh, glad you made it on, man. Great. That's a dedicated Twitter follower, man. I really appreciate you calling in. I look so forward to being here hearing from you. And uh, I know we had exchanged tweets uh, off and on, so it's great that you should be able to call in. How you doing, man? I've been doing pretty well. Just been listening in. And I guess my thing is probably critiques, but I know that you all have another caller, so I'll probably keep that. Mm-hmm. To myself, and if y'all want to get the other caller, go ahead and do that. No, so. no, go, go ahead, go ahead. You're, you're on, bro. Go ahead. Well, the main thing that I was kind of looking into when you all were talking about political economy, I think one thing mm-hmm. that I saw was the fact that you all were talking about the European colonialism, and mm-hmm. one thing that I kind of remember from some of my history lessons. Um, there was the Chinese had already traveled the world before the Europeans did. So one thing mm-hmm. that kind of sits here and like the relationship, I remember you talking about David Graeber's 500 years of debt. I think that mm-hmm. is one thing that you, that kind of sits here and under makes that relationship of how they wanted to conquer Europe or not Europe, Africa. One of those mm-hmm. things that kind of comes out. My thing, my argument is like um, Spain. They wanted to conquer other nations because they had a specific relationship to mercantilism or the merchants, the merchant class right. who had them in debt. For example, the conquistadors right. were trying to find gold. That's why they went to South. I think it was South America, Brazil, mm-hmm. or Portugal. Those types of things. So the the history of debt kind of sits here and makes it so these people had to become very irrational, destroying, becoming barons who had to oppress the people to make, you know, those types of fascist states. That that kind of gives you a, a perspective of why in the world would they go after places in Africa? They couldn't go to the middle of Africa because, you know, Egypt, mm-hmm. we know those types of places, but, well, Say Ghana, the, yeah, the coastal places had lesser defenses, so they right. needed more slaves mm-hmm. to take over to America. And um, I listened to Gerald Horn, who's a great like um, econ, uh, not a, historian, uh, historian, historian. Yeah, I've been reading him and listening to what he has to say about the Counter Revolution, seventeen seventy six, whereupon the British and the settlers had a certain relationship. You know, they couldn't trust the Irish and the and the Scottish. So what happened is they get shipped over to America, they fight against them, but they become brutal dictators in their own right for the settler mm-hmm. class. So mm-hmm. I, I I I know that I could probably go more deep into the history of the debt where the banks sat here and basically took over the land 
and just kept repeating that process as people move west. But it's just there's so much depth in just that relationship with America and how, you know, we've allowed this fascism and slavery. I mean, I know I'm getting – Way off topic, but it's just well, no, no, absolutely but, intriguing. But, but, but Jay, you're Jay, you're right, and that's you know, and you're going into more detail, which is good because that again, that's that economic, and we're talking about economics in this kind of broad stroke. But you can you're going into some some specific examples that are very good, and that again, that's what Marx talked about in terms of influencing these kind of social relationships, and also this power structure. See, because if we don't, if we, this is the problem we have. We look at economics and we look at the economic structure of society as um, well. That's the only way we can, you know, that's the only way we can do it. We will never really examine well what what's the problem with those economic uh, uh, problems? What are the problems with economic the economic situation that we we develop? And what kind of impact do they have on our social relationships? So in in a, in a lot of ways, this is what Marx was getting at as well. Besides being a political economist. He was looking at how people relate to one another. You see my point? And so the rela- yeah. our, our relationship is influenced by, right, these economic uh, uh, goals, interests, um, greed, That's- if you will, um, all of that. I mean, you know, so that so you're not just, you know, somebody getting up in the morning and going to work. You're entering, we, every day we enter into an economic relationship with one another. And, and it can be very negative. Even though we think it's positive because at the end of the day, well, at the end of the month or wherever, you're getting a paycheck or you can go out, go out and buy stuff. Sure, you can do all those things. You can. But we don't look at all the kinds of consequences of those things. When you, you like you, you know, talked about in terms of parts of Europe going out because they were in debt in the mercantile system, what did that mercantile system cause people to do? And after they did it, after they began to go out and look for other resources, exploit other resources, Look at the kinds of culture that it built. Look at the racism. Look at the, the, the notion of, of, of uh, um, the, uh, the, 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 what was the thing called, the divine right of kings. And, the, and the, um, there was another thing where Europe, where Europe at one point felt like that, that it was a supreme culture and that everybody needed to come under that culture. I mean, really, seriously, they really pushed that. They educated people around that. They enforced their language. They enforced their music, their culture, all of that on other people because they felt like they were superior, and that superiority came about because, hey, they were able to go out and start colonizing, using their weaponry, using their military, all that to subjugate people and then turn back around and, 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 uh, and justify it. Even, um, that's what even I, I read a book by, uh, about Carl, not Karl Marx, but Charles Darwin. One of the reasons why Charles Darwin got into studying evolution was because of this notion of phrenology. This, this was, a, it was a European scientific thing called phrenology that they really thought that because their, their brains were superior to other people. And, and they really tried to, um, um, you know, justify that and bring, bring, create an entire, entire science around it. So, so yeah, you, you, you know, we could can, we can go on and on. I mean, another caller, but but, Jay, I really appreciate the fact that you've been able to call in, and I hope this won't be the last time, right? Oh, no, it won't be the last time. It's just I know that you all have other people, so I wanted to no, just no try problem. to chime in. But, uh, no problem, man. What, what I, I really want to do, 
Well, Go I ahead. do want to say one last thing. Um, you may find, uh, in terms of just to look into that phenomenology, uh, or mm-hmm. phenology, phenology. Uh, mm-hmm. there's a woman, her name is Joy DeGruy, and she has this book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Um, mm-hmm. She goes into people like Thomas Jefferson, who basically began that, to kind of ease his mind about the slave system that he was creating, where he basically, mm-hmm. from other sources like the Smithsonian um, Smithsonian Magazine, he gets 4% profit every year for every new slave that he gets. And I can go into more, but I'll leave it to, to another caller to ask their questions. But I was just saying yeah, her book. We, yeah. Yeah. We, we got to get deep. See, we got to get deep on that because – that's what I like. Sometimes guys, have got to go some of these shows to kind of get deeper into some of that kind of relationship because, again, people might think, well, that's just history. Why are you getting all old school? No, those kind of things that way people saw and thought back in that day impacts how we think about each other today. It just, it just, it just changes the form maybe. It may change the, 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 the particulars, but the, 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 the ideology, right, the way people see each other is still around. And so – so, Jay, definitely, man, call back in, um, and we're going to – I want to try to devote more time to, to go into some of those kind of deep things you're talking about, brother. All right? Uh, thank, yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it, brother. All right. Let me get uh, the 407 uh, caller in real quickly. 407, are you there? Yeah, this is Ed. Uh, I've got a couple questions for you. Uh, in 170 mm-hmm. – this is Ed – and I'm out yeah, of Florida. Uh, okay. In 170 years since uh, Marx wrote, um, what area of the planet do you think was the best example of what he wanted to bring forth? You know, where mm. was the best system, best practice at in 170 years? And in the next 170 years, what area do you think will, you know, take pride and where do you think it will uh, work at best? You, you that's know, a I'll good question. Carl talk about that too. Go, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll answer that too. But go ahead, Carl. I'll, yeah, that's a good question. Um, the challenge is, is that Karl Marx did not articulate a plan as to what that uh, different society would look like. Other than, um, you know, he speaks only briefly about it'll be an association of producers that um, uh, it'll be each from uh, according to their ability to each according to their needs. I mean, he gave broad philosophical um, uh, analysis, but he, because he was a scientist, he didn't like to predict or to plan, and that was one of the criticism um, that he had with Owen and Fourier around what that kind of society would look like. Um, it wasn't until Lenin, it, well, even before Lenin was the Paris Commune, the Paris Commune in, in, um, in 1848, um, uh, 18. 51. It, when the Paris Commune came along, it was it was a glimpse into what socialism would look like, and they only last for seventy you know seventy days, and um, but that was the only thing that Marx described that if socialism came into existence, it would look something like the Paris Commune. Um, it wasn't until the Bolshevik Revolution. Can I, say, can I say this though, and maybe I know. Sure, England talked about it in his book as well. 
one of the things one of the things it did say though is that the conditions for socialism, ironically, was to build a to, to go through a capitalist uh, means production, so that and and and, and that makes sense because it's it, it's very difficult to have the to me socialism kind of requires a, a a higher form of production as well as more democracy, right? Um, and so you have the, you know you've gone from this kind of feudal stage. Uh, of, of society, you're going into this kind of industrial capitalist uh, uh, stage, right? You know, and the 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 now that you know maybe the last stage or the ultimate stage is when people begin to take their uh, their lives in their own hands. In other words, when people have the capacity to really begin to make decisions on their behalf and not allow other people to make that. So, in in a lot of ways. I would say, in some ways, right now, in terms of modern economic situation, United States is one of the is one not not the only one, but your, your your industrialized states have the seeds or have the basis for socialism because you have the a higher level of production, right? You have people are much they should be much more literate, right? You have democratic institutions that have been fought for. Uh, that need to be continue to be fought for. So, I think it was a lot easier for socialism to develop in more industrialized places where, where there is working class consciousness than in places like, say, for even in, for example, even a Cuba or Venezuela, where it's going to have problems because they they haven't uh, developed to the certain extent that they need to. Now, that's just my analysis. I don't know what you think about that, Carl, but but that's kind yeah, of how no, I that, see that. that. Yeah, that was going to be the second half, and you pretty much cover it. The first, the first half is that he didn't have something laid out for people to look at and say, okay, did this model fit to reality, and does that reality mm-hmm. exist today? But he did articulate the point that you just raised, that the seed of the socialist you know, um, uh, roots and, and, and flowering takes place um, in the midst of capitalism. And so... I agree with you. We have probably more so than any other time in history the greatest possibility for the success for socialism under two basic ingredients. One, we have the technological capacity to basically to produce the kind of goods that will meet the needs of people and be able to know what the needs of the people are um, and, and to get those goods and services to them. Second, we have struggled, particularly here in America, but also in France and Great Britain and Germany and, and, and different places, for the greatest possibility of what that democratic um, uh, democracy would look like. In Germany, for a while, where the uh, factories uh, were um, under the control, where they, they had like these co-op factories where workers sat on the board of directors and made decisions as to what that, you know, what... Um, uh, how things were produced, which worked in the best interest not only for the co-op but for the community in general. There are lots of flowering examples right in the midst of us. The ch- a challenge is to be able to make it real. Um, and the, the, but the question, of, I, I think, the question is: Is there's an example for us we can look for today? I would say look at some of the examples around us, but we still. Once the working class is empowered 
to take all these experiences and knowledge forward, it will probably move the, the notion of, of socialism to the most advanced level um, parallel that, that we've as yet have, have seen. So. Yeah. So, Ed, um, de- definitely thank you for calling in. How did you, uh, how did you right. find out about us? Uh, on Blog Talk Radio. Okay, cool, there. cool. So, Dre, well, thank you. Thank you so much for calling in your question. I really, really hope that you call back. Good now. question. We're going to tie it up in the last 20 minutes. Uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, uh, Mark's uh, utopia takes place somewhere. I just, you know, I'm just curious if it will insert in there. Yeah, and you know, and I don't, you know, and that and that that notion of utopia is another thing. I think that you know people kind of use that. You know, we, we're not yeah. we're not going to talk. You know, it's not about a perfect society, but 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 if you want right. to say, you know, we want utopia as opposed to dystopia, which I think we are going toward dystopia, because that's that's a form of neo-fascism. It's not a perfect yeah. society, but what it's saying is is that if the more and more people are conscious about not only themselves, their relationship to one another, how the environment works, how things are produced and not produced, but, you know, all of those things, the more conscious that we are, the more democracy we have. We need to have more democracy, not less. The more people do that, that leads toward socialism. The reason why, for example, I think you can't get even universal health care in the United States, right, is because you have an oligarch class that, that – for whatever sets of reason, I don't know why, as much money as they have, they don't want it to happen. They're, they're capitalists. Too many people make money, so they don't want it out to happen, even though that is, that is a serious problem within our society. The fact that you have a, a, a society and a culture that doesn't want to have a system that takes care of all the people says a lot about where we've come. You know, it's, it's just, to me, this is a, one, of, one of the most de- defining issues of our current um, uh, political economic system. It's, it's, a, it's a defining issue. Just because we, just because we have universal health care doesn't mean that that leads to socialism necessarily, but it, it says that if you can't even do that, then what does that say about how we think about one another? You see my point? So you can, you can argue all day, well, I don't want to, I don't want my taxes going toward paying for somebody else's health care. You know, I get, I get why you may say that, but the fact of it is is that it would be much better if we have a collectivized universal health care that we all are taking care of no matter what, that, that we make that a priority. It's just like if we said, okay, we want to have a public education system, K through 12, so that we say that we, everybody can get access to education, and we can argue up and down, you know how good the education system is, but but we but we have enough sense to say, look, everybody needs to be educated. They need to be able to get access to skills. They need to be literate. If people are not that, if they don't have that, that brings that's the down. That brings the that keeps the culture and the society down. It makes it very difficult for us to, to for, for the culture to grow, for the society to grow if we don't have that. Well, it's the same thing. If you have people that cannot access health care and they die because they, don't act, they, they, they can't access it, they, they also have economic uh, problems, financial problems, because the, the, uh, the medical you know, health care is so expensive, that creates a problem on society. It creates a toil, a toil on society. And you notice that when people got this Affordable Care Act, 
which got 24 billion people with insurance, now people don't want to see that go. They don't want to see that go because they can see, you know, even though Puerto Rico has serious problems, they can see that it, the, the benefit of it. So we just didn't go far enough, you see. So, so it's not so much that it's utopia, but that we improve, we improve a way to say, look, we can end, we can end uh, hunger. We can end poverty. We don't have to have people not, you know, living without shelter. We, we can solve these problems today. This is, this is not a problem that we can't solve. There might be some parts of the world they don't have enough resources uh, or, the, or even the skills to end poverty or to end homelessness. But, but here, that's not the case. In most industrialized uh, parts of the world, this is not a problem here. This is, this, is, this is a choice that we've made not to do it. It's not that it can't be done. It's a choice that we've made not to do it. And it's also that the working class, the masses of people, are not conscious enough to say we demand an end to poverty. We demand an end to homelessness. That's something that we have to decide to do. And if we don't do it, well, fuck, it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. So, I mean, I hope, I mean, I know that's a lot to respond to your one question, but you understand what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, I hear you, man. It's not an easy question to answer because there really isn't a absolute answer yet. Like you said, Mark didn't really try mm-hmm. to show people what it looked like. He just said, this is what I think we need to do. Right, right. And, right. and I, we, can't, we, can't, we can't anticipate, as much as I would want to say, this is what socialism will look like in the United States. I, 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 people ask me that question, and I say, well, okay, on a basis level, this is the way I would look at it. Socialism would mean the nationalization, the nationalization of banks, the nationalization of uh, basic resources, that is, you know, resources that, that, that everybody, um, that, that belongs to everybody. Nobody, there's no family or, or individuals own um, these resources, right? There is the universal, um, uh, 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 universal health care, universal education. There is uh, into to to this notion of that uh, that if you can't afford a house you can't have one or, or, or some kind of shelter, Though that to me is the basics of socialism. But how that pans out, I mean, what that does in the in the day to day in the political, that right there can only happen when it happens when we push for it. I can't predict all that. I can just say these are some of the things that I think are components of what socialism will look like in an industrialized world. And then when we talk about communism, I mean, shit, man, that's just so far from me that I can't even envision it to me personally. You know, I, I can't even, I can't, you know, maybe Carl can, but I can't envision it at all right now because we can't even get past socialism. We can't even get past universal uh, uh, health care. Oh, shit. But, Carl, you want to say something else on that? Yeah, no, you, I think you pretty much covered it. I, you're right, and it's the caller um, also recognize it's, we don't know exactly what that will look like in all fleshed out form. Um, what we do know is what we want, what we would like to see. We do have the greatest capacity um, on parallel, in my opinion, in history to do that. But it will also be the most difficult during that period, not so much that the working class and oppressed people are in control of the state and then go about making it happen in the widest possible sense. But it will be a struggle because 
those who are out of power are going to struggle to get back in power by any means necessary. There are those who will argue that this should not be a democratic process, but this should be a authoritarian, dictatorial process. There will be those who, what, they, you know, what Marx described, who, who are still in the old ways, who still have the old notion of bourgeois rights, in a sense that, you know, uh, private property, you know, single manager, you know, the whole works of the old society still impacting. So it will be a struggle. And it'll be a struggle uh, of of discussion. It would be discussed, um, and sometimes it would be intense. But at at the same time, as long as as everyone is participating and learning from the process of moving forward, it will, um, you know, build to a, a much more uh, perfect society. We will never get to the perfect society, but we will try to get as close to it as humanly possible. The challenge for that is what we've learned is that it can't be just in one nation anymore. Um, we need to have as many nations because, you, you, as you well know, you don't get your cell phone just from, you know, manufactured from China. Parts come from Germany. Parts come from, you know, Taiwan. You know, it's, it comes from all over. It gets assembled in China, you know, shipped to the U.S. I mean, we're so interconnected economically now that is extremely difficult to to be an island of a socialist country um, than it was many 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 years ago uh, and so and, and that's the yeah. reason why that's the reason why some socialist states like Venezuela or Cuba struggle because right. you know they they because they get cut off uh, from trade and things of that sort so they they do struggle but it, but at the same time. Globalism, in a, in one, one is, is bad in the sense that it's, it's mainly globalism is for the benefit of capitalists. But on the other hand, we can have what's, what I would call co- a co- cooperative co- uh, globalism because that can be a very sure thing where we begin to start really sharing resources. That is not about being a scarcity thing. It's not about you know uh, putting up tariffs and on, on each other. But that we we do what we already do under capitalism. That we we have right. to share resources. No no particular country can survive on its own. Not even America. It, it, you know, America may have an abundance of resources. Africa has abundance of resources. But no no particular country or place can survive on its own. But so we can have a kind of cooperative uh, globalism. And the good thing about that, and so what's so beautiful about that is we got seven billion seven billion people on the planet. So that if you have, for example, Walmart and McDonald's is the biggest employer in the United States, under socialism, I would see not McDonald's and Walmart being the biggest employers. I would see education system being the biggest employers. I would see medical institutions being the biggest employers. You see my point? I mean, we would, we, we would redirect, you know, where our needs are. Our needs are not to go out and buy a whole bunch of stuff from Walmart or to go buy hamburgers from, from, from McDonald's because we don't have time to, to, to cook the food at, at, at home. So, you know, we, we might not, those might not, those won't be, to me, the biggest employers. You know, we would open up the doors for people to have more teachers, more nurses, more, um, more engineers, uh, just, you know, a lot of different things, that, you know, a lot of different areas that we could have and open the doors to that. That, 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 that will open notice of that. The reason why 
you have places like a, a Walmart or a McDonald's or wherever as being the top employers because that's where capitalism can make its money the fastest, right? Same thing in the milk industry. They can make, they, you can make a lot, a lot of money. Same thing in the, in the oil extraction industry. Any kind of res, uh, resource extraction industry, they make buku money because, you know, it's, it's, it's money to be made in those areas, right? But yet those same areas, you know, the, in the, the, the extraction uh, industry, you know, things that people to take shit out of, the, out of the ground, don't put it back in there or can't put it back in there, those are the ones that are undermining, environmentally undermining the planet, okay? So we have to, be, we have to think more holistically about these kinds of economic social relations that we're in and what they mean. And that's the reason why I think it's so good to, to talk about and study Marx, not because Marx is the only one talking about this stuff, but that's the reason why we, you know, that's what you can learn from Marx if you go back and read this, and go back and read it. Uh, we, we did a three-part series on the Communist Manifesto, and I, and I hope we didn't repeat too much of what we talked about in those, those three-part series, but, but start there, and then, you know, go to some other, if you can get to Dust Capital, I've never been able to read through the entire thing. I think Carl has, but, um, uh, but there's a, you know, start, or even start with Terry Eagleton's book, uh, why Marx is right. That's a good. That's a good introduction, and then you, that you can kind of go into read some of Marx's works himself. So, anyway, we're we're closing out to about eight minutes. Carl, you have some other things in edge. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, in. Appreciate it. Yeah, we we really really do appreciate the calls, and and they're good questions because it helps us, um, you know, really think through some some of uh, some of those points that the uh, callers. Uh, bring in and, and probably I, I think some of the stuff we have actually covered in previous shows in terms of education, economics, health care, um, a wide variety of stuff. But it also is helpful in the sense that just getting a sense of what people are thinking out there. Carl Kosky, um, it's kind of interesting, um, wrote a book um, called uh, Social Revolution. Um, and he was the leader of the Second International uh, Theoretician to the German uh, Social Democrat uh, Party before he fell from grace after World War Two, World War One. Um, World War One, he landed on the wrong side of of the issue. But anyway, he was uh, he wrote a book called Social Revolution, and in it, um, it's hard to get. I mean, it's really hard to find that book now. But um, and I'm strongly suggesting they should reprint it because what it, what it does, it answers a lot of the questions that this show actually covers both, you know, the analysis that are leading up to the social revolution and then what some of the thinking of uh, some of the leading Marxists of their day um, in 1895 through uh, 1905, uh, what was their thinking about what that new society would look like? Um, um, They were a little bit more visionary about articulating some of that, um, which is a really good book, but, you know, the the thesis or the premise upon which he articulates his point is pretty much what we've, we've articulated in the sense that we cannot, you know, give a blueprint or a plan and say this is the perfect model that what it will look like, but we could, we strongly suggest people to really look at the emerging uh, socialist uh, buds that are happening from the co-op movement to the Occupy movement in terms of democracy. I mean, all these resistance movements that are happening around the world. Um, you know, many 
experimentation that is taking place of people trying to make a better society, trying to make you know a sustainable economy. Those are the things that we would like to take with us as we move into a new society and try to implement in a larger setting. So um, even during Mark's time, there was a um, those utopian uh, communes that came to the United States in New York and different and, and in New York. Um, the Owenites, they were called, um, that uh, uh, that basically tried to experiment uh, with socialism uh, and realized, um, you know, you, you can't do it in isolation. Without a social movement, things are not going to fundamentally change. So a lot of this is 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 is, is driven around that. But the the one thing that the book alluded to in another book, um, and I can't think of it off the top of my head, um, uh, 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 alluded to, oh, it was David Harvey's book on the 17 contradiction of, of, of the end of capitalism. Marx, during the 1990s and late 18, uh, 1980s and through the 90s, had fallen out of grace because they said, oh, the collapse of the, the, the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Berlin Wall makes, you know, uh, Marxism irrelevant because, you know, we have globalization, we have all these other issues that are far more important. The shock of the economic crisis that began in the United States in 2007 and reverberated around the world has brought Marx back into the, the, the narrative. Even among activists, but even more so among the bourgeois economists and the bourgeoisie. Magazines from Business Weeks, from Financial Times, from all over the world, they were saying, oh my gosh, people are going to be start reading Marx, and Marx is going to point out why things, you know, economic crisis, and, you know, we better do something quick to, to squelch this as, as, as soon as possible. So they jumped on it really, the ruling class jumped on it really quick. We are just beginning to catch up, and um, we have a lot of new writers, new authors who are writing a lot of great stuff, new theoreticians that are out there that are producing a lot of great works uh, and taking Marx's basic premise and underlying notions of what capitalism, political economy, um, and, 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 you know, fundamental change and philosophy, and advancing it based on the, the the knowledge and experience and history that has taken place um, since his death, we are we are rich by we've been enriched by all these experiences um, and what Marx has provided us, and I think we have the greatest opportunity to rebuilding a new social movement that is guided by a new vision of a, of a socialist society to get us there. And there are a lot of new. Um, theoreticians, activists, people in the street, you know, cadres, people trying to do the right thing to build a new movement that is taking place today. Well, you know, and, and Carl, I, I would be more specific than that. I, 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 and this is a topic for another show, but I, I think that the that the move toward um, uh, automation technology, the the notion of of even globalism, not capitalist globalism, but the notion of you know states you know, like working with each other, you know, sharing, not, not even sharing resources, but depending on resources with each other, um, that the notion, even the Internet, the, the, the expansion, the access of, 
of uh, of information. Okay, the, the, particularly the almost the worldwide access to information, the level of communication that to the to the to the extent that almost everybody in most societies um, either has access, you know has a has a, a communication device or 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 can you know, possibly get one or that we can make that happen. I think, and this is, this is again, another topic for another show, but I think those kinds of things really are the basis for a better, a better society and, and a social society. What's, what's, what's missing from that is, again, you have oligarchy, you have this, these, these notions of you know, money and, 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 and power going to the top. Um, so that's, that's, that's what's stopping all that. But, but if, we, if we move toward more of an equitable economic system, if we put caps on, on, on wealth accumulation, if we nationalize resources, get in, if we get in line with, with, uh, with, the, um, with, uh, with the environment, that, that right there can bring about a better society and form the basis of socialism. But let's, let's come back to that next week, because, or, or next, not next week, but another show. Uh, really appreciate the uh, callers calling in uh, Jay and Ed and uh, we're looking forward to having our show next week where we will have a representative from the socialistworkers.org that's going to talk about the uh, uh, socialism uh, 2017 in Chicago so we're going to be doing that as well so we'll keep coming back we're going to keep hammering away at this topic uh, all, all these issues here that we're talking about and uh, we welcome your feedback we welcome your questions and we definitely always invite you to call in and we're going to try to if we see more people calling in, we'll even devote more time to people uh, getting on the show and, and having their questions and comments because we have some really good callers call in and give us some good, really good feedback, and we need more of that. We don't want to do all all the talking, even though we do. <laughs> so thanks a lot, Carl. Appreciate it, brother. Thank you. 